on this week in sales, we're going to be taking a look at RFP management, self-service for Salesforce, how long it's going to take before Victor crashes on his new bike and much, much more. My name is Will Barron, founder of salesman.org and joining me, joining me on this episode, the co-host, how can I phrase this? The sausage to my roll, the pigs in my blanket, sales legend, he's left this chair. <laughs> Victor Antonio. How's it going, my friend? That is so wrong, man. That is so wrong. I'm assuming those foods no, translate the to, to the way, US. The milk to my coffee would have been fine. <laughs> I think people are going to hear that and just get totally disturbed. Please know that Will did not warn me he was going to say that. Mm. Other than that, Will, I'm doing well, man. How are you doing? I am very well. Um, I should probably say, just for the record, for anyone who's watching this on video, it is Friggin' hot in the UK today. And so if you see me getting uh, sweatier and sweatier, the reason I'm wearing this shirt over my T-shirt is I can probably uh, sweat through this T-shirt before the end of the episode. So there we go. If you see me, my forehead getting as shiny as what yours usually is with your polished head, Victor, then we know what's going down here. Dude, my head got damaged, summer. man. Did I tell you my head got damaged? Was this Dude, when you were dropped as a, I, dropped as a child? No, 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 no. To, by the way, the reason we didn't do a show last week, it was good because I had a... Uh, I ran into, I was at Lowe's, it's a hardware store. Sure. I reached down to grab something on the ground, right? It was a drill bit. I came up and I hit a trowel, a metal trowel, on right the top of my head. And so we're going to have Adam zoom into this, but there is a scar, if you can oh, see wow. it. Oh, wow. I can see it's it, like yeah. right there. Yeah, it's like, oh, no stitches required. It was just like, bam. And I remember <laughs> I'm, I'm covering my head, right? After I bag it, I'm just like wobbling, right? And I remember I go over to my wife, I have my hand over my head, well, and I go, and I, I said, sweetie, I said, is this bad? And I just did this. I showed it to her, right? My head, I just put my head down. She had the most horrified look I'd ever seen. I was like, ooh, it's bad. So no stitches, but anyway, I'm on, I'm on demand. I'm on demand. Dude, it, uh, it looks like you've been attacked via yeah. a, a spade or something. <laughs> yeah, man. It's like, it's like a little slit. It almost mm. looked like, I, like I'm a walking piggy bank. You can put yeah. money in, just insert money here. <laughs> I'm hoping the scar stays there so I can use it as part of my speech. I say, here's the money slot. Insert coins here. This salesperson will begin to sell. That's my joke. Anyway. Love it. Well, without Victor, without anecdotes and scar, we'll leave. We'll put that as the thumbnail of this video. Just your, just your head. Um, mate, tell us, jump us into some sales news. All right. Sales news. News. Listen to this name. Lupio. See, I love this. See, we're living in an age where people are coming up with new names. They're no longer the stale names like Nabisco, Sears, Walgreens. It's Lupio. Lupio and Seismic. Now, Seismic got big funding. Do you remember what they got for funding? It was not too long ago, but they got some major funding. Uh, but anyway, Lupio and Seismic launch enhanced RFP content management integration for sales teams uh, this was released on the 8th year. Lupio, the leader in RFP response software. Why is everybody the leader in RFP response software? Does that mean everybody's tied? Has announced advanced update to its unique-to-the-market integration with Seismic, the global leader in sales enablement. Everybody's a leader. Together, Lupio and Seismic offer the only complete end-to-end -end solution for sales content management, for coaching, training, uh, proactive content delivery, and sales proposal creation. I quote from the CEO and co-founder of Lupio, Zach Hemraj. He says, I quote, the events of the last 18 months 
have accelerated the pace of digital transformation. Maybe we should have some dramatic music here, right? Many companies have increased their focus on modernizing the sales technology stacks to gain additional efficiencies to better serve their customers. What do you think of this announcement, by the way? Do you want me to be honest, Victor? Well, of course I do, Will. I really don't care. Well, I mean, you know, well, we, we I know we've got to put it. We've got to put a show together. I can, I, I mean, could fake some excitement for this announcement if you'd like. Seismic is making. What was the funding on Seismic? I know you looked it up. What, what did they get for funding? So Seismic raised 170 million dollars at a three billion dollar valuation. See, there's three billion dollar reasons you should pay attention to this. I think this is interesting. I think again. More people are bolting stuff onto these systems, and the growth of these platforms are—it's it's becoming quite interesting. How people are fighting for market share, and I see seismic, like the Phoenix Rising type of thing, going up against whether it's Course or Salesforce. You know they want to go after Salesforce and Microsoft. So I, I just like watching seismic do this stuff because I think they're going to become, you know, a very, very strong company. Sure, I don't know, and I and I prerequisite this every time we talk about cash, Silicon Valley startups and funding on This Week in Sales. Uh, I don't know if we're just in some kind of bubble at the moment where there's just so much money being thrown around. There's been a bunch of companies that we've talked about on This Week in Sales that seemingly have no business being worth 100 million, 300 million. Um, Seismic, obviously, a uh, a leader in that particular, or in the sales engagement space uh, and the sales content engagement space. And so wherever they've been, brighter people than me have given them that valuation, Right. But it's almost like there's just too much money. And so these numbers don't really mean anything anymore. And I don't know how much value there is in the software tools. I would love to interview someone, an end user of some of these tools to suss out, well, are you actually using it? What value? I'd love to, I'd love to interview two people. Whoever's implementing this tool into their organization. So you see what they think is supposed to be happening and then interview a salesperson who's on the front end of all of this, and if they actually use the training, the content, the RFP tools, whatever it is, or if they just go, I know best, I'm the salesperson, I'll just have a conversation as opposed to essentially sharing marketing collateral that has somewhat amount of data that says this should be right at this moment of the sales process. I'd be really interested to see what this all this looks like in the real world as opposed to on the balance sheets and acquisition, acquisition sheets of these Silicon Valley startups. Yeah, I, for me, I look at it from this point. I don't think there's there's a lot of money being thrown around, but I think this market is just expanding because the value of data is becoming that much more valuable and the cost of storage is almost nothing. But what's interesting about this is that they're adding more capabilities. And as they're adding these capabilities, I think they're just trying to extract more intelligence. And I think they're going to resell this intelligence down the road. So I think it's not so much just the, you know, the set, you know, the, the software as a service, but really the data that's in there. Sure. And the RFP provides the you know, request for proposal, you know, content management system allows them to pull even more data on wins and losses, and maybe somebody can use that information and can be resold. So I think the, the value is in the actual software, but more importantly, I think the data being accumulated, I think that's where the market's going. So what you're saying is the software as a service is almost bootstrapping the real business, which is a... Uh, a data asset management organization, essentially. Yes. And I would put, if we could draw a Venn diagram, I would say yes. And the third part I would add, add is that just like Facebook, you know, you put so much content into Facebook that it's all that sunk cost, right? Mm -hmm. So 
companies like Seismic know that, hey, look, if you start using our system, you're not going to basically get rid of it, right? There's not going to be a high churn. So think about it. Here's a company that gets you to do the sunk costs, invest in their system because they keep bolting on all these wonderful items. I'm sure Lupio came into play when one of Seismic's big customers says, hey, you don't have an RFP you know, component. And they went out and acquired one or partnered with one in this case, which they'll eventually buy. And then, so now, the more they put into the system, these customers, that means, here's what's interesting, I think. I mean, maybe this is too nerdy for this conversation. But I think you reduce your churn rate when you bolt on these new types of application. And that's what these companies want when they want to go to the market and get a new valuation. What would be fascinating, Victor, and we'll never get this because these aren't public companies yet, or not yet public companies, It'd be interesting to see what their churn was at the beginning of the pandemic when all large organizations were just slashing everything that they didn't deem was essential. So a CRM is probably essential, even more essential during the middle of a pandemic when you've got to reach out to specific people who may or or may not purchase or you've got to keep in touch with your buyers so that you can close deals on the back end when cash is back in the marketplace. Um, I'd love to find out, not picking on Seismic here, but just all of these, uh, you know, these unicorn-esque companies that are bl- seemingly blowing up, not necessarily overnight. They've been in development. They've been, the pot's been boiling for five, six years now since I started doing uh, content creation, right? Um, it'd be interesting to see how much of their revenue was slashed through churn at the beginning of the pandemic, because that would give us a real accurate figure of how uh, how essential these organizations and their software actually is to a, a sales team and a marketing team. Yeah, I think, you know, I know, last point before we go on to the next story is that I think this is my, this is anecdotal, you know, an anecdotal information slash opinion is that because of this digital transformation, because of the pandemic and p- companies realizing that they don't need to be face to face with customers, I think what we're seeing is this shift of money from sales organization, cost of sales over to the marketing pot. And I think that's where all this is coming to fruition. This is why all this is happening. So I think that's interesting. For sure. And as you say that, maybe we're not the best people to make anecdotal assumptions about some of this. Because if you've got a team that is completely undigital and someone like Seismic comes along and says, hey, in one fell swoop, we'll just do, we'll give you the infrastructure and the platform to, to become digital, for want of a better phrase to describe it. Um, maybe that's worth the investment just to go, we're now digitally transformed and we all tick a box and look good in front of our our management and and leadership above us. Maybe that's the pitch of, hey, you need all these frameworks, you need this, you need this. We'll just do it for you. And it's all done in one fell swoop. And that I can see could perhaps be enticing to sales leadership when that's the buzzword of the moment, right? Yeah. And by the way, to your point, it's a great point is that you want to tick the box. I'm sure Seismic wanted to tick the RFP management box to be more valuable. So good point. Amazing stuff. Well, let's move on to Salesforce. And I won't dive through all of this, but what I thought was interesting, this article is from a terrible website URL, e-commercenews.co.nz. Uh, the the article is entitled, Salesforce introduces AI-powered insights, sales enablement, and new self-service options. And it's the self-service options that I thought was the most interesting of Salesforce. The product is 50 products, right? And it's sold into sales engineering, sales operations, sales enablement, sales leadership, management, the executive suite to pull data for their own quarterly reports, whatever it is. Um, it'll dive into accounting. I'm sure there's HR elements to all this. And so 
up, in this, up until this moment, typically you have engaged with either a consultancy who will um, help you implement the software. And so you buy via them. Um, I know HubSpot does a lot of this. We touched on that a couple of weeks ago. Um, or you'd speak to individual salespeople at Salesforce and they have a killer sales team. I've engaged with loads of Salesforce reps over the years. Some of them make crazy money. So if you can get involved with Salesforce at that kind of rep level, at the right product or service, you're, you're, you're doing well from a sales perspective, from a seller perspective. But here, Salesforce is saying they've introduced a subscription management for Revenue Cloud, which is essentially that CRM. Um, Gavin Patterson, the CRO, says companies are shifting to focus more on B2B buying and subscription management through self service. Sales leaders need to be able to quickly launch new products and services across a variety of channels from e-commerce to in-app purchasing. And essentially, long story short, it seems like they're almost setting up software tools, self-service to go around some of the sales team because maybe they're needed in some scenarios and clearly they're not needed in others. And I thought it was slightly ironic that Salesforce are building self-service to sell their own products when the products are designed for salespeople to sell other products. <laughs> there's some irony in there, yeah. there. and clearly uh, it's just the way the market's going right maybe 20 years ago right. when salesforce was founded uh, probably longer longer further back than that you you needed a salesperson to come in to have the conversation to uh do the discovery do all the more traditional sales uh not techniques but traditional sales process and uh you know here's salesforce saying hey you can just do a lot of this on your own here's some videos sign up yeah, no, no, uh, uh, I didn't mention this, uh, but I last week I did a presentation, uh, a virtual presentation for Salesforce India, Amazing. right, uh, to their executive level. And one of the things that I talk about is obviously what we talk about on this show, Will, is that uh, even in the B2B space, you're seeing the digital transformation, the self-service, as you put it, right? And so it was hard for some salespeople to hear that that marketing now has a bigger role in sales in preference formation, right? In other words, how people find things. And so this doesn't surprise me, but it's it's really fascinating how this market is really changing. Well, I think this pandemic really has, I think maybe 10 years from now, we'll look back and see the real impact of this digital transformation and what that really means. Right now, I feel like it's that globe with the little snow inside. It's all shaken up and it's still trying to settle up. And so this is just another flake moving around in a certain direction. Say, hey, self-service is the way to go. For a salesperson listening to this right now, and I've asked you this question multiple times over the past like 10, 12 months that we've been recording this week in sales, what should a salesperson be doing when they hear that they've just bought a big house, they're up to the eyeballs in the mortgage, and Victor Antonio <laughs> will probably tell them off for that in the first instance, but yep. they've, just got, they've got a kid on the way, they're looking after grandma, she needs uh, cash thrown at her because she's got an addiction to driving Porsches or whatever it is. What do you tell a salesperson who's going, crap, is Victor Antonio and Will Barron telling me that my job is not going to exist in a few years? What should that salesperson do right now to become, um, uh, you know, like almost like sales recession proof if there is a big drop off of sales reps in the future? Yeah, well, th well there is. It's happening already, right? The, B the number of B2B salespeople has been dropping. So you can do two things. I think you have two options. One is you can move inside right? Become an SDR or a BDR. Let's say a BDR because it sounds a little more high level if you're coming from an AE, you know, an account executive standpoint. But the other thing is, you know this, well, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir when we say, if you're selling a simple product, you're going to be replaced. If you're selling a really high complex product, you're not going to be that easily replaced. That's the answer. So maybe you should shift companies or shift selling a different product, whatever it may be. But the reality is salespeople 
are becoming, I mean, the data shows it, right? I think if Gardner talks about how simply like 76, 77% of the people don't want to talk to a salesperson, period. I mean, they're telling us they don't want to talk to you. And if they do want to talk to you, as I always say, it's one of three things, clarification, confirmation, or give me the confidence to make the right buying decision. So that's my answer. Move in or move higher up to a higher product complexity. Sure. Higher product complexity, yeah. And my thoughts on this are similar. One thing to add, perhaps, and we're kind of doing this over at Salesman.org. We touched on it before we clicked record. I've just hired a crap load of writers and they're costing mm. me a crap load of money per month because one of the things that I want to do is start to build out not just sales podcast, uh, sales podcasts like this, which is like 50% entertainment, 50%, hopefully it's 50% entertainment. It might be 3% entertainment and 97% just content, right? Um, there's that. Uh, we do sales training over Salesman.org via video, audio, everything else as well. I'm also pushing the writers to do product reviews, CRM reviews, software reviews, that side of things, because I want us to become um, a, a space where people will come and see us as a, not just me, as a platform of expertise in the right. seller marketplace, right? And salespeople right. need to do the same. If you, if I'm in medical devices- Great point, great point. The endoscope isn't here. I can't pick not it up and pronounce it. Not bring out the endoscope. The endoscope. When I was in medical devices, uh, back when I was a young convictor, um, I would, I've said this a million I times. I, 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 I'm going to start a campaign, ban the endoscope. The, the I'm going to wave it around as we're going yeah. to this now. Um, I forgot what I was saying. I would become an expert in endoscopes. I'd be maybe not creating a blog, maybe not creating a podcast, but I'd be positioning myself as not a salesperson, Victor Antonio, I would be positioning myself as an expert in one tiny part of my uh, product or, or market mix. That means... Yeah, endoscopes. You'd be an endoscope export, like I'd, a double E. I'd probably be a... Uh, I'd probably frame myself as an expert in the camera systems that this plugs into because, well, they're more expensive, so I want to be yeah. wrapped up in that. And I, like I enjoyed all that stuff as well. I would love to see your presentation, too. All right, here's how it works. All right, what we're going to do is take this endoscope and stick it in here. And then we got a TV right here, high depth. You'll be able to see. <laughs> Dude, you uh, if you're presenting to a 60-year-old nurse in like the middle of the UK, the one thing that they want to do is print. All they want to learn is, how do I print stuff off? The surgeon asked me to print. I need to print. Okay, press this button. Okay, so how do I print? You just press this. You just press this button. Okay, so that's great. But how do I just print stuff? Okay, you print this button. It's it's not as uh, as as glamorous as as props what I make out as I wave around this piece of metal and and glad, glass rod lenses. But anyway, I I digress. We digress. Becoming an expert in something that you can yep. sell, I think, makes you less sackable than a more generic salesperson, even a BDR. A, whatever we want to call these individuals. You know, it's funny. I was talking to, uh, I think I've mentioned uh, the president of a pest control company, uh, you know, last week who was, you know, lauding this week in sales, how much he liked mm -hmm. it. What was interesting is that their numbers are so good that they could hire another hundred salespeople. Now think about that for a second. This is pest control. This is not high tech. It's pest control. And so even in a low complex service solution, guess what? There's still business. So I think nobody really knows how this all shakes out. Yeah, but but so, why is that, Victor? That's a great example. I've just had a wasp's, wasp's nest dealt with that was on the front of our house, right? I don't want to ring around seven salespeople, get a price, 
and then hope you know bring three of them in and hopefully one of them can solve the problem. I just went to the most expensive one with the best website with the best content on there. And I, it was like 50 quid, whatever it was. Maybe it would have been cheaper somewhere else. And the dude came around, uh, shook my hand, was very appropriate, professional, solved the issue. And then that was, it was gone. That's what buyers want, right? They want experts to solve problems and they've not got the time or the energy or even the capabilities sometimes to shop the market um, other than once a decision's perhaps been made and they need to justify a price they've already essentially confirmed. And by the way, so, so let's go back to the buyer journey real quick. They, you researched it online, 90% sure of what you wanted. Then you reached out to the pest control company. Yep. And the thing is, you can't automate that because you can't get a robot to actually get rid of the wasp nest. So there's, there's a perfect example of an industry that will not be automated out. So that's why it's always a tough question to answer when we talk about that. Yep. As far as you know, leaving the market, who's going to be in, what should I be doing? So it really depends on what you're selling. For sure. For sure. And I, so I, to wrap that up, I think it's fair to say then it's important if you are looking at a sales job, if you're shopping your own services at the moment, you want to be joining a company that has this nailed, right? You Maybe you don't want to be joining a boiler room, old school, traditional sales company where you're given a list of names and you're told to go and sell. Perhaps we're now looking for organizations that are going to support us and we fit into the buying journey as opposed to it's, hey, Victor, off you go, son. Go and close some deals. There you go. But if you don't want to go, there's another alternative. Denave, I think that's how you pronounce that, launches its retail solution mascot called Dudgeeny. I just love the name, Dudgeeny. <laughs> the new mascot is called Dudgeeny, and it looks like it's a genie in a shopping cart. That's their new mascot. So, Noida, India. Man, we're international now, man. We're going international now, big time. Denave, the global technology-powered sales enablement organization. Can we add more adjectives to that? Today, I'm building its first ever retail solutions mascot named the genie, right? <laughs> uh, I just love saying it. <laughs> Sunil Munshi, APAC CEO of Denave, said, quote, I'm extremely excited to introduce our new brand mascot to our clients. Our strong lineup of retail solutions needs a, needed a, it needed, now listen to this, our strong lineup, it's a strong lineup, of retail solutions needed a unique identity to articulate the commitment, the rigor, the prowess, and the value of our offer. Now, let me just kind of highlight this. They, they needed a unique identity. In other words, they needed a mascot to articulate commitment, rigor, prowess, and value. And they chose a genie. Somebody, please, for the love of marketing, for the love of marketing, how did you tie those two things together? Let me say it again. Commitment, rigor, prowess, value. Mm, let's get the genie in the shopping cart. That's our mascot. <laughs> with the ponytail, I might add. A genie with a ponytail, I might add. What the hell's going on here, Will? So my question to you is, Will, it's a very, it's a very serious topic. That was, that was a long stay, intro to that question. Stay with me. Stay with me. Stay with me. What are we doing here, Victor? <laughs> Would you what, prefer... What is this I mean, show anymore? Like, what if, you, what if... I don't understand what you're talking about. I don't understand who this company is. They've got a great uh, slogan on the website, on the um, homepage. It says... Oh, now it's, just, now it's just scrolled out the way because that's what you do with a hero image. Shorten the journey from high to buy. I think that's, that's pretty slick. 
pretty slick. I thought that was pretty slick. But what we're looking at here, Will, it's But this genie is bullshit, Victor. What the heck is this? This looks like it's been designed by like some 14-year-old who's just installed uh, Adobe <laughs> Illustrator or whatever it is that you do vector images with. What? What? <laughs> it was pretty bad. I, you know, by the way, the reason I inserted this story, this, by the way, this is my story, so that's why Will's going at it. Uh, because I inserted this story because I was thinking about how companies are using, you know, virtual assistants, you know, you know, to actually answer questions online. So you got a sure. chatbot, you got a virtual assistant, and now we have mascots. I mean, you look at Salesforce. Salesforce has that that little thing running around with a tail. Yep. I forgot what it is. Whatever that creature the, the, is, the trailblazer. It's a the it's tra a kid in a suit, in a beaver suit. In a beaver. <laughs> I think it's a beaver. Okay, so we got genies and kids in beaver suits. And I, I wanted to ask you a serious question about this, Will. If you had to build your company, it's a multi-million dollar company, big company. And watch, you had to watch what you say now, Victor. Watch, watch. Why is that? Go ahead. Because you might just be about to inadvertently take the piss out of like a third of our marketing strategy, but go on. Okay. What would you want to do? You're going to become a big company, Will. And then you're saying, you know what? We need something to, I'll use Sunni Munshi's phrase here. You need something that represents a unique way to identify, you know, a unique identity to articulate commitment, rigor, prowess, and value. Would you choose a genie, a no. mascot in general, or would you choose a virtual assistant, a person? Yeah, but the, the premise of the question doesn't make sense. That's like saying, do you like apples or feet? I'm just saying, if you had, if you made a decision to go with a virtual, some type of virtual assistant on your web page, yes, okay. would you choose a person that looks human? Sure. Right? Or would you choose an animal or an avatar? 100% an illustrated character. That's IP sure. that can be created, scaled grown okay. if you have a face even if it's like a uh, i don't know a composite that you create so it's not actually a real person um that's freaky humans aren't ready to chat with fake faces but they are ready to chat with like the illustrated characters that we have over at salesman.org with sam the salesman and, and the whole team over there that's a great way i'm not saying we do it perfectly but i feel like illustrated characters like that like what we use don't get me wrong this genie is bullshit but the characters that we use <laughs> it's a great way to talk about topics that I couldn't talk about um, okay. authentically. I just, I just want to highlight something here, Will. I just want, you just called the genie bullshit, but you have stick figures. I'm just saying. The genie Dude, has a you be right. You be straight and I, I won't be, I'm not, uh, you wouldn't offend me either way. Which looks better, our characters or this genie? I would go definitely with your character. Of course. I'm serious about that. I wouldn't go with the genie. I just, anyway, I just wanted to ask. I just thought I'd throw this in there just to kind of get your, you know, take on that. And you're shaking your head. You know what I'm, you know what I'm going to do, Will, right now? I'm going to move on to the next topic because I think we need to get back to this serious zone here before we go down this rabbit trail or rabbit hole, rather. Do you have something to say? Or do you, you look like I've you got, have something to say. I've got nothing to say. That genie uh, is the worst logo. I'll put it in the show notes for everyone at thisweekinsales.com for this episode where you can leave your comments, your opinions, and your negative feedback on how shitty the genie looks. We'll, we appreciate all feedback on that front. Uh, try to be objective. Give us a thumbs up or a thumbs down on uh the company's uh was it the Danabe's new genie anyway on a more serious note customer data platform market is now worth 
will be worth $15.3 billion by 2026, which is really just around the corner. So this came from a PR Newswire. According to a new market report, uh, research report, wait for the title, wait for the title, get yourself a drink till I get done with this title. Here's the title of the actual report. Customer data platform market with COVID-19 impact analysis by component application, customer retention and engagement and personalized recommendation, deployment mode, organizational size, vertical capability and region, global forecast to 2026. Now I gotta believe that they should have shortened that up. Maybe that was too much description in the information or the title itself. But anyway, this was published by Markets and Markets, what a name, Markets and Markets, trademark. The customer data platform market size uh, is to grow from 3.5 billion US in 2021, so that's 3.5 billion today, to 15.3 by 2026 at a compound annual growth rate of 34.6%. Various factors such as increasing spending on marketing, here it is, increasing spending on marketing and advertisement, activities by enterprises, and the changing landscape of customer intelligence to drive market. This is, I mean, this is a good piece of data because, again, I think what's happening is a lot of the dollars are being shifted over to the, the marketing side, and this actually talks to that. Will. Okay. I don't want to keep just, like, shitting on all these articles and stories and data points that you bring up, Victor. Because I've not done my job this week of filling out the doc that we run through each week. I've not, I've not uh, pulled my weight there. What is, and I'll give you, I can give you a definition. I'm not trying to trick, trip you up. Sure, um, sure, sure. But what is the definition of a customer data platform? If you look at like an ERP system, sure. that's what they're trying to do. Collect all the data on all channels. That to me is what it means. So it's, it's basically, I don't know if the CR, they're going to have to come up with something different from a CRM. I don't know if the CRM is going to sit at the center or is it going to be some other platform that sits in the middle? And maybe that's the customer data platform itself and everything plugs into that. That was my question. So uh, a definition here from exponier.com, whatever the heck they do. A CDP, customer data platform, is a creates persistent, unified records of all your customers, their attributes, and their data. Is that not just a CRM? It is. It is. Everything collapses around the CRM. But the thing is, the I think the definition of a CRM is getting convoluted. Do you know what I mean? Because it, is it really, is, is a CRM, if we go back to the basic customer relationship management system, you're managing the relationships, which is just electronic Rolodex, if we go back to the most simplistic form of it, and it just, it's gotten more intelligent. Now, but all of a sudden, you start adding omni-channel, right? Stuff comes in from different locations. You're starting to bring in different data sources. And I guess you're pulling a lot of that into that. But, you know, so where's the dividing line? This is my confusion all the time that I'm trying to figure out. Where's the divide line between a CRM, a sales engagement platform, and a sales enablement platform? And so maybe the, the this, this customer data platform really is where the market is going. Everything bolts into that, including a CRM. Sure. And I don't understand. That's why I asked that question yeah, as well. But sales enablement, though, I'd yeah. say sales enablement is giving content, appropriate content in a timely manner to salespeople to share in the buyer journey. I think that's one thing. CRM is what this, I think, just outlined. A unified set of information about your buyers, where they are in the buying process, and then perhaps, you know, hopefully next steps and things like that. But what I don't get is a customer data platform market worth 15.3 billion by 2026. But if I Google Salesforce's market cap, that's 256 billion 
Salesforce alone. So I don't understand the difference between customer data platform and CRM and why that is separate. And it seems like the same thing. If if I can, I'll look at it from a database standpoint. If, if we look at a CRM as almost like a, a like a GUI, like a graphic user interface that displays you know all the dashboards and everything, right? It's the physical representation of all the data that's in the actual system. But where is the actual data stored? And it's some type of data platform, I, I, some big ass database, big ass database, bad, big ass database, nice. yeah. Yeah, so so maybe it's a bad, it's a big ass database, and that's kind of it's like AWS, right? The cloud, it's just a big ass database, and maybe that's what they're really talking about. Uh, but it would be a bigger market value than that if that were the case, because AWS is worth more than that. So maybe it requires more clarification. More to come next week. <laughs> definitely that, not more to yeah. come. We're definitely not going to revisit this next week because we'll totally forgotten unless there's a subject. Uh, I think I want to similar. So I'm going to make it a point to look this one up. I'm going to really make it a point to really okay. define what we mean by that. Anyway, on sales training news, by the way, give us some feedback on thisweekinsales.com. Always love to hear from you. Uh, Lee Sauls has a new book coming out titled Sell Different, All New Subtitle, all new sales differentiation strategies to outsmart, outmaneuver, and outsell the competition. The release date is September 14th. Uh, this is a follow-up to his book, Sales Differentiation, 19 Powerful Strategies to Win More Deals at the Price You Want, which was released three years ago, 2018. Now, I've read Sales Differentiation. I thought it was a great book. There, there's, a, there's something in there he calls the uh, Differentiation Universe, which I thought was a very unique approach to finding you know differentiation. I do have, I got a... a preview copy of Sell Different. I have not read it yet, but if it's anything like the old book, like his last book, uh, it's going to be a great read. He's always coming with, so I've met him, I've talked to him. He always has an interesting view, especially in the, in the B2B side, when it comes to figuring out, you know, how do you differentiate yourself in a market? Because I think it's becoming that, it's harder, isn't it, Will? For sure. It's it's harder to do it authentically. It's one thing, because it's in the eye of the beholder, it's in the eye of the beholder, the eye of the buyer, right? So whether you differentiate it or not. Um, and it's one thing to say, buzzword, 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 acronym, AI. But then the buyer goes, yeah, well, you know, it's the same nonsense that everyone else is saying. So it's if you can differentiate yourself, that's step one to winning the deal, right? Otherwise, you're just going to be competing as a commodity on, on price, which, you know, sales 101, we don't want to be doing that. I go back to a point you made earlier, which is that the salesperson, I believe strongly, has become the new differentiator. When all products start looking alike, it's how the salesperson presents that product, which is why you can't replace that type of salesperson, as you mentioned, right? There's specific skills that certain people have, the ability to communicate the differentiation that will never go out of style. You can't replace that. Uh, so anyway, just want to recommend the book. Like I said, his, his content is always well-researched, well-thought-out, and uh, like any other book, you know, what, every time I read a book of this nature, I always tell myself, if I can just grab 10% of value, you know, if there's 10 chapters, one uh, makes all the difference in the world, that's perfect for me. And I think he'll provide that. So I just not, scan it real quickly. Not commenting on, on Lee specifically here. Um, mm. Maybe you can talk about your own experience. Mm. What percentage of most B2B sales books are useful content? And what percentage of them are filler that makes it a book the tough question because i i really I don't just it depends of course no, but... no 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 i don't want to say that let me just kind of qualify it this way sure. i'm very choosy who i read from 
Okay. You know what I mean? I usually do. I usually look at the author, see if they have any real business skills, or was it just somebody who decided to become a trainer the next day? <laughs> and so, yeah, you know what I mean? And so, like, for example, uh, Anthony Inarino, great content on the BB side. You know, he's another person I just love reading. Uh, there's a guy, I just wrote a book called, I think it's Dave Perry or something. Excellent book on B2B. So, I think a lot of the B2B books that are written by at least some of the, the good authors really have great content in them. And all, all you need is, again, something to shift your brain a little bit. And everybody has a unique perspective on it. So I think the majority of books I read on B2B are pretty good, actually. How do you differentiate what a good book is versus a bad book without, you know, your time is, you know, obviously valuable, both financially, but obviously, um, <laughs> nearly made an old person joke then, but I won't, I will, I'll hold that one to myself. Uh, <laughs> you should have gone for it. Yeah. You should have gone for it. Well, you don't have the, that much time left, do you, Victor? You can't, you, you've only got, you've only got another hundred books left. No, no, no. I, so, so what I do, speaking of a hundred is I have the hundred page rule. Did I ever tell you about my hundred page rule? Nope. The hundred page rule is I read the first, I go up to a hundred pages. And if there's nothing there, I stop reading. I mean, I'll sure. scan the rest, but then I'll just like toss it. By toss it, I mean, I give it to goodwill. So that's how much time I spend on books. Usually, uh, I'm not, the majority of books usually have something. So what qualifies as a good book? Something that, even if I know what it is, Will, just gives me a different look at it, right? Almost like you're one degree off center. You go, oh, that looks a little different. Never thought about that way. Sometimes it's just an approach. How do you ask questions? Uh, uh, how do you position the product? When should you position the product? So sometimes it's strategy. And you can tell. I mean, you can really tell. It'd be interesting if the audience can you know, chime in on this one. Uh, can you tell early on whether, you know, the, the, the author is full of it or is it re he's the real or she's the real deal? And I think in the first hundred pages, you'll know, you'll know. So, and by the way, if I can just add this note in there, this author, whoever it is, you know, how many hours do you think is spent writing a book? Will, if you were to guess, I mean, how much time do you think is spent writing a book? And maybe I'll just say in terms of, you know, hours or months, what would you guess? I would say having spoken to lots of people about this because I've got, I want to train all, I want to put our training content into a book at some point and I'm not doing it because I'm not spending the hours to do a proper job. I'm not spending the months, even years to do so. I would say if you're working full time, at least six months, if you're doing other stuff, which most sales trainers are, people who write these books at least a year. Yeah. For me, it's six months minimum like to write a good book, right? And so the Sales X Machina definitely took, I think that was about six months and that was about maybe, I'm gonna say two hours a day of commitment, easy, right? Because I would go to Starbucks, five o'clock, seven o'clock, get it done. Uh, and so when I look at a book, I'm also thinking about six months worth of work put in a book. And if I can just grab one idea, I mean, what what a, I hear people complain about paying $15 for a book and I'm like, shut up. If you get one idea for in exchange for, I mean, you're exchanging $15 for six months worth of work. And there's got to be something in there, at least in the first hundred pages. If not, chuck it. What percentage of, uh, yeah, you've you answered the question and some, which is good. What percentage of books do you that you read month on month uh, were published in the previous 12 months? And what percentage of books are like older, more well-known or, or, you know, classic business books? I think the majority of books I read are published within the last two years. That, that's fine. I rarely go back too far to, because it's outdated information, right? Uh, so I just bought a book. I don't remember the title, but it's on, it's on uh, customer analytics. And you know, that was, I think that's a year and a half old. Uh, I won't go back further than that. Because I'm older, you know, one of the things I'm very cognizant of is I got to figure out 
you know, I got to stay current with what's going on and not reach too far back. Because I do something similar, but perhaps to a, uh, a bigger scale, like the dichotomy. I will read books that are six months old, uh, brand new. Obviously, people coming on the podcast will send me the books uh, that they've just written that they want to promote on the podcast. But then I typically don't read anything that's like two, three, four years old. I'll go back to, I try and find the genesis of whatever the idea is. So um, I really like Seth Godin, for example. So I'll read a lot of his books that are like 10, 15 years old. Um, what, what did I read recently or reread? Uh, Permission Marketing. That's like so old. And all the examples he's using are totally out of date. But because it's fundamental, because people want to be marketed to having opted into something, it's fundamental, right? That's never going to change. Um, it's still really relevant and timely and hasn't been diluted by someone who read that book and then put their own spin on it and someone did a course on it and then someone consumed the course and then now they're a marketing expert, they write their own book. So I try and go both ways. I'll go brand new, interesting, and maybe, not maybe, I'll go out on the line and say a lot of the more modern books I read are a bit thinner content-wise and so I'll skim them and then I'll go back to not necessarily classic books. I'm not talking about books from the 20s or 30s. Even though I read a bunch of like books on like Rockefeller and and people like that, um, and, and autobiographies and biographies, I think they're valuable in their own right. But then I'll go further back to like the genesis point of the idea that's trying to be communicated, uh, even if there are more modern books on it. I got that, yeah. I mean, someone buy books, like I, I call my book the golden shelf, right? By, by that, I mean, because I don't have, I'm not the guy that just tries to collect a bunch of books and impress anybody. So every, every six months, like mid-year July, I already did my first purging. At the end of the year, I do my second purging. Uh, so my shelf doesn't get bigger. It's just that I got to make room for the books that deserve to stay on the, on the golden shelf. And so I don't have a lot of books on my shelf. Maybe I have about maybe like 50 and that's it. And then I purge the rest. I do have purgatory, by the way, just as a side note. It's I put them in, in a little closet because I'm not sure if I really want them. And if, if in the next six months I don't go look in the closet, they're gone. Do you make That's notes? Not... Do you document your ideas uh, from books? Or yeah. how, how do you go about doing that? Two ways. One is I, I mark the hell out of these books up. I mean, I really rip into a book. I mean, there's, you know, in the margins and everything. Uh, something I started doing is a little more time consuming, but I, you know, two things I started doing. One is uh, I'll read a book, like if I'm reading the Machida book, you know, what I'll do is I'll grab index cards and just capture the idea and I write the page number. Mm -hmm. And then I usually have a bundle of index cards. But as you know, I started using the Kindle Fire. And the Kindle Fire lets you highlight things and then create flashcards. And so that to me is the most efficient way of doing it right now. Yeah, I'm similar. I've been for a few, I've not read anything in ages now. I've just been two head down mm -hmm. in building. Uh, I don't no. need new ideas. I need less ideas. I need you to focus. Okay. Um, but my last stint of reading, as we were starting to rebuild the course like 18 months ago, 12 months ago, um, I'd read every new book on sales I possibly could. I would have my uh, Kindle. Uh, no, I'd have my uh, iPad Pro. And on one side, I'd have the Kindle app. And then the other side, I'd have a Notes app. And you can just copy and paste the text across that you want to uh, uh, go after. And then I'd highlight and note it. And I've got each of these in little folders. And then the text is all searchable, even the handwritten text. So that's why then I'll go back and find a quote or kind of a, an idea. Uh, but it's a lot of work. But I feel like doing the extra work up front means that your, your brain's not very good at holding on to and documenting things. That's what we need computers and technology for. That's what a CRM is, right? We can't remember all this stuff. We can remember... Uh, Victor's got a, a Dachshund and this and that, but we can't remember the specifics the about the dates that we called and this and, and, and one, two, I three. Find, I, I find that a fascinating topic. It's going to be, 
you know, uh, it, it's a little bit in the next book. It's about memory distortion and how we just don't, you know, I mean, as soon as we try to record something, we distort the information because yeah, we delete. If, so have you ever seen like, all the studies on eyewitness testimony and how essentially is it totally ineffective? We all, we're all just lying to ourselves about the stories that we're replaying in our brains. Yeah, I, I saw one where they did one on 9-11. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I think they went back like two years later and uh, they were 15 percent off of their original, you know, uh, recounting of what happened. And by the fifth to seventh year, they were like 30, 35 percent off, yep. you know, different. In other words, it already changed 35 percent from the original story. And I think that's fascinating because I think over time it just continues to morph. But anyway, on a more lighter topic, Will, I did it, man. Will, I did it. I did it. I ordered my first electric bike. Just thought I'd share that with you. I bought a Rad Runner 1, and it arrives today. Super excited. I've been waiting for almost four weeks for this thing. And so I even bought a little rack with a basket for my little dachshund pebbles to ride along with me. So my girl's going with me. That's my dog right there. He is my dog. Victor, <laughs> you on this bike... With your dog, your sausage dog, sat in the front yeah. of it, it might be like the most, like least masculine image I've ever like thought of in the whole of my oh, life. Look at that bike. It's a nice step through bike. I wanted something casual. You know what's so You step through so you don't get your dress caught on it as you're cycling, right? <laughs> That's cold. That's cold. <laughs> I bought a, uh, I got to tell you, this is kind of funny. Uh, I bought this helmet that, you know, they suggested. And it's so tall, right? I swear to you, I look... I thought I looked like a giant penis, and my wife's like, "No, you look like you're gonna be shot out of a cannon." Yeah. You know, so I had to go. So this past weekend, we went over to a place called, no, no, no joke, Dick's. Dick's Sporting, <laughs> Sporting Goods. Good. Yeah. yeah, Dick's Sporting Good, and I found a more reasonably looking helmet. So I will, you know what? When it when it arrives, I build it. I will take a picture of it, and then we can post it on our blog page, thisweekinsales.com. How fast does it go? I'm trying to look at the final specs. I think it's 30, 35 miles per hour. I probably won't be going that fast. Uh, I bought fast. it because, was that, by the way, I bought it because... Uh, because you're lazy uh, and you don't want to cycle like the rest of us. Well, that's partly true, but they're, you know, they're building so much stuff around us, Will, like restaurants and everything, that there's a lot of congestion with cars. And so, you know, me, I just like shooting over to Starbucks or a small restaurants. So I thought this might be interesting. If we like it, then we'll buy one for my wife. She says, well, "Why don't you buy that one? Let's see if it works, and let's let's kind of see if we actually use it." The so the 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 laws, regulations, everything is up in the air at the moment. So you, in the UK, so you shouldn't really be riding an electronic bike on the road because it is a motor vehicle. It's an electronic motor vehicle, and so it should be taxed, insured, should have number plates, and you're also not allowed to ride push bikes or electronic bikes on the pavement. So it's all up in the air. It's all being debated at the moment. Same with electronic scooters and stuff, right? What's it like in the U.S.? Can you just jump on the on the main road and get rocking and rolling? Yeah, they're actually building. I mean, a lot of the new roads now have an actual bike path, like off to the side. And can and you, you can go park, on park. the bike path on an electric bike? Is that legal? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the question is, can you go on the sidewalk when you have to? You know what I mean? Just poof, just jump the sidewalk. So uh, we'll find out. I'll let you know if I get fined, if I have to jump on the sidewalk. Because some of the roads here are very narrow like two lanes, they're very narrow. So I think you have to get on the sidewalk just to get to some of the main roads. But again, we live in a very quiet area. 
once you go outside of it, just too much traffic. Like would, I wouldn't go on the main street. So I'm, I'm going to use it for short runs and to take my dachshund on a couple of rides, man. That's, that's really like, how I, long? Like, she, she likes to get out. Every time I go get coffee, she wants to jump in the car with me. So I have a special seat in the car for her. Her name is Pebbles, as you know. And so, uh, when I was thinking about the bike, I almost didn't get it. But then my wife said, why don't you get it so you can just dr drive Pebbles around. And so that was part of the uh, motivation, i got to be honest. Two questions. One, we'll yeah. exclude Pebbles from. Okay. How long before you fall off it? It's going to happen. You're going to slam on. Someone's going to drive in front of you. Something's going to happen. How I, long? I, I, it's not long. I've fallen off a bike so many times. I, You know, I got a Jamaica story where I actually – the, the <laughs> I'm coming down the hill. I'm giving you the short version here because people are going to get bored with this. So we're doing this bike tour, right? We're coming down this hill in Jamaica. It's really like a mountain road. And there were so many potholes that the front tire got caught. And then it, it just launched me. And I remember I was, you, you have that moment, you don't have time just slows down. Mm -hmm. Well, as I'm going up, the backside's going up because I got momentum. All I remember going, this is not good. Because I'm, I'm feeling myself being launched. I had a helmet. I mean, I was just bam. with. The, I mean, just, I hit the concrete. I actually broke my arm, but it was a hairline fracture that just broke right through, but it didn't shift the bone. And so I didn't find out to about maybe a week later that it was broken. By that time, it was already mending. So the doctor says, can't do anything for you. But I did have a broken arm. I I got stories about me falling off a bike. So the, the answer is I'll probably fall off one again, but I'll have a helmet. I'll get scraped up a bit and I'll get right back on the bike because that's what salespeople like me do well. So that leads me to my second question. So assuming you won't fall off the bike with the dog because you'll be sensible, will Pebbles have a helmet? We actually bought her one. Yeah. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. Oh, it's got a little helmet. We got a little, a little helmet. You and does she, does she have it on? I know Walter, our golden retriever, he wouldn't have a helmet on. He, he'd be well, tried, chewing it, bashing it about. Yeah, she's shaking it off, but we did put a helmet on her. So what I think we're, uh, we're going to do is uh, we're going to try it out first. We're going to use this basket that actually has her covered, yep. protect her a little bit. But again, I'm not going to be going fast. Like, I'm not going to be going whatever. The, you know, the, the, it'll be slow, right? You know, so Pebbles will be safe. So all you dog owners, I will take care of Pebbles. And we'll be doing short rides only. Um, I'm interested. I want to see, you know, that video that went viral uh, maybe 12 months ago with the guy on, if he's on a skateboard and there's music in the background and he's just chilling. I want to see that, but with you doing a selfie with yourself and Pebbles, just like cruising, just cruising. Do you, know, the did you, do you know, I actually did a viral video with that. I did my own, that same song. Did it go viral? No, it didn't go viral. <laughs> but it was like, you, you can't know, say you made a viral video if it didn't go oh, viral. Sorry, it's I just a video. I did not make a viral video. What was that? Do you remember the name of that thing? I, I don't know. Okay. All right. We'll have to show you the video, but actually I, 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 I kind of cheated because I used the drone. And a green screen. <laughs> and, but I had that, that whole drink, the whole thing. That's really cool. We'll, we'll include it in the show notes over at This Week in right. Sales. Cool. .com. That's all I have, Will. That's all I have. How about you? Anything else? Um, No, I'll have a few things to announce uh, maybe next week or the week after with some things that we're doing uh, both at salesman.org and mm. then some things that we're doing with a partner, HubSpot, clearly. I don't know why I'm trying to be secretive about it. Um, so I have a few exciting announcements to share in the next couple of weeks. But with that, we'll wrap up there. That was Victor Antonio. What did I say at the intro? The sausage to my roll, the pig to my blanket, sales legend, Victor Antonio. My name is Will Barron. I'm the founder of Salesman.org. And we'll speak with you again this time next week on This Week in Sales.